So great to be with you this morning and such a, an honor to fill the pulpit for my friend Mike Cahill. I, I assume that you're all getting to know Mike a little bit, you know, he's a great guy. And uh, can I tell you a couple things about him though and, and you, won't, you won't reveal? Like, <clears throat> well, we were doing some interesting things at the, the college uh, with our faculty. We have a somebody found this personality test, the Myers-Briggs personality test that we could take online, a free version of it. It used to cost 50 bucks to take this test. And so I don't know if, you, if, if you've done that test before, it gives you a four-letter code as to what your personality is. It's like ESTJ uh, or something. And uh, so we all took that and we, there's 16 possible personality groups and we mapped ourselves and we, the faculty, we were different places all over the map. Um, and uh, that's good. You want to have a diversity of personalities in a group like that, except for there were two people who showed up in the same box. That was Mike and me. We were the same personality type. And the, the personality type was called entertainer. And they gave a uh, celebrity that uh, would match that the most, and that was Marilyn Monroe. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. But so the E part of that is that you're an extrovert. And uh, I, on the extrovert scale on that, it gives you a scale. I was 70%, which is pretty high. But can anybody guess what Mike was? Well, he was 100%. <laughs> but that's not to say we're exactly the same. You know, I'm, I, I like, I've done trips with Mike. I like to have him with me because I don't have to worry about any details. He takes care of everything. And I just let him be in charge of all that stuff. And it, it kind of showed up. We were coming back from a, a trip that we as the faculty took to Indianapolis last year for a conference. And we let Mike do the, all the driving. He loves to drive. And, and so we're in the van and everything. And... Coming back from Indiana, of course, there's uh, going across the state of Illinois, there's never-ending uh, construction on the freeways, so they always have lanes closed off. And, and so they were getting everybody down to one lane, you know, right lane, a clo closed ahead. And, of course, Midwestern people all pull over early. And so I'm, I'm actually moved up here from California, so I see that as an opportunity to just jet around everybody and get right up to the, where the lane ends and then merge in. Somebody always lets you in, right? They might honk at you and everything. And so Mike is more the person I, he's way back here, about three miles back. He wants to get in the right lane and get in the queue. And I'm like, Mike, no, just go around and go around everybody. You save a lot of time. And he's, he looks at me and he goes, you're one of those people, aren't you? <laughs> so anyway... We get along well. Uh, I was told by a student on a trip not too long ago, she said, you know, Dr. Krauss, you're pretty oblivious most of the time. So I found out I was an oblivious person. I didn't even know it. <laughs> I mean, so life's funny. Um, he asked me to share with you this morning from the book of Hebrews and it's a great book. I love the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you all realize this. I don't know how much he's told you, but 
The book of Hebrews actually in the Christian churches and churches of Christ, the churches of the Restoration Movement, has been rated as the most influential book in forming the theology that we tend to share. If you are familiar with the name Alexander Campbell, it was probably the most formative book for him. And so Hebrews is important, but it's not always given a place of importance in, in teaching or preaching in the church. Many prefer stories about Jesus. I don't blame them for that, so we preach the Gospels. A lot of people like the magnificent doctrines you find in Paul's letters or maybe the mysterious images that you find in the book of Revelation. But Hebrews is filled with descriptions of Christ that are unlike anything else in any other book of the Bible. So in Hebrews, for example, at the very beginning of the book, we see the role of Jesus as the Son of God, the role he has in creation itself. Maybe hinted at in John, but not too much. Jesus is described in Hebrews as the captain, or in the NIV, the author of our salvation, a, a description you, you find nowhere else. Jesus is both, in Hebrews, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And Christ serves, in Hebrews, as both our eternal high priest and as the eternal perfect sacrifice for our sins. Those, those are doctrines, really, we don't find anywhere else in, in the Bible in the way that we do in the book of Hebrews. But if you've read the book, you know that it's tied to the Old Testament. Hebrews quotes the Old Testament scriptures over 30 times. Sometimes it quotes them at considerable length. Some of the longest quotations of the Old Testament are found in the book of Hebrews. And yet, he doesn't do it the way we usually use the Old Testament. He doesn't have an argument he's making, a point he's trying to understand. Uh, and he goes and, and pulls out a couple of Old Testament scriptures to back up his argument. Instead, Hebrews is trying to dig into these older scriptures. He's trying to find out what they have to say about Jesus and the new covenant of the church. And so because of that, the book takes an interest in the history of biblical Israel. It takes a very strong interest in, in its religious practices as we find in the Old Testament. This is part of what he's looking at. So in particular, and we'll look at this a little bit in our text today, the author is con concerned to show that the, the priests of Israel and their temple and their sacrifices, keep those, thi those things in mind, the, the, the priests, the temple, and the sacrifices, all kind of the same package of things in ancient Jerusalem, all of them for him are pointers to Jesus. So I want to move to the text that Mike assigned me, chapter 10, and we'll, we'll break this down a little bit, but chapter 10, and we'll start with verse 19 and just look at a couple of verses at a time. I think uh, as we get ready for this, if you're turning there, the idea here in, in this section of Hebrews is he's talking about faith, and he wants us to have a bold faith, a a faith that is just powerful, bold. He, he wants his readers to come away reading this book feeling like their faith can be strong. It should be strong. It is strong. And it can be bold. And so what's the basis for that bold faith? I, I think this is what you find in these two verses. So the author says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, 
that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now I'm going to stop there, and uh, even though it's in the middle of a sentence in the book, these are the therefore since statements. In other words, this is stuff he's already covered in the book. And let me just summarize a little bit. We don't We're not going to take time to go back and dig these out. These are parts of what he wants to say. These are the things that he thinks if you've been paying attention, you would acknowledge by this. Now, so three things. Number one, he says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, this, by the way, isn't the temple in Jerusalem. I I actually believe that the book of Hebrews is written after the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. It's not there anymore. But he's not really worried about that temple in Jerusalem anyway. He's, he's talking about the perfect temple, the temple in heaven. It's the temple that John sees in his visions of heaven in the book of Revelation. This perfect temple. The, 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 and this is the holy place, the, the holy of holies, the most holy place, the, the inner sanctum, it's called sometimes, the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. So this perfect place in heaven, the temple, because the temple, and this is what he, he kind of, he looks back at Israel. What was the purpose of the temple? You might remember that they had a precursor to the temple. There was a, a thing they used before they built a temple. Anybody remember what that is? Shout it out if you remember. The tabernacle. But what was, what's usually the tabernacle called in the Old Testament? It's called the tent of meeting tent of meeting. Why? Was that because that's where you held your meetings, you know, your quilting bees and that sort of? No, it's where you met God. The temple was the place where you would go to meet God. And what he says here in in being able to enter the holy place is that now through the blood of Jesus, we can enter and meet God at any time. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to build a tabernacle. We have, through the blood of Jesus, the opportunity and the privilege and the the power to meet God at any time. So that's his first point. He's already proven that, by the way, in, in the book. Number two, how do we get there? He says, we get there, we enter through the curtain of his body. And I'm going to interpret that a little bit. His body, the body of Christ, the church. So, we know from history, by the way, that the, the temple in Jerusalem had to get into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would go in once a year. They had a curtain in front of it. It's called the veil of the temple. One account of this says that that curtain was four inches thick. The, fab- the curtain, it was woven of this fabric that made it four inches thick. It... Uh, was 45 feet long and 30 feet high. And when they lifted it in place, we're told that it took 300 men pulling on the ropes to lift it up. It was that heavy. And you might remember the story in Matthew at the time of the death of Jesus. the, the, The veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking, if I had a piece of fabric four inches thick, thicker than most phone books, you know, 
I probably couldn't tear that by myself. I don't think this is any human tearing. It's, it's coming from the top where nobody's up there, nobody's that tall, and it, it's a miracle that the temple is opened, and so that holy place, we can enter into it. And this is the image that he's using. There's no need now for a formidable barrier between God and people. The author wants his readers to know that they now have access to this most intimate of places, full access to God himself. And what I think he's saying is that we have access now because of the work of Jesus Christ through his body, the church. It's in fellowship that we meet God. And we'll come back to that at the end of this message. But his third point here is that we have a great high priest. These are all things he's talked about already in the book. This is Jesus himself. Jesus is both the eternal high priest and the eternal sacrifice, as we already said. The purpose of a priest, though, remember what the purpose of a priest is. He's not, you know, the guy at the Catholic Church that uh, hears confession. That really wasn't what a priest was. In the Old Testament, the priest was the person we, if I can use this term, it's a big word, but he mediates your relationship with God, meaning he's the go-between. Well, I can't possibly talk to God. I need help. Okay, well, the priest was supposed to help you with that. And now we have the greatest go-between of all time. We have the perfect high priest, Jesus, the very son of God. Now, I have a, a son named Jesse, and he works at the college. He's a student. And I believe it or not, I've had people who have been intimidated by me and wanted to contact me, and they do it through my son, Jesse. Anybody ever had that experience with your, your children? Somebody wants to get a hold of you, and they, they find a good way to get in contact with you is through one of your children. I, I think that's a pretty normal thing to do. And this is what he's talking about here. We can talk to God. We can have access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have these three things to make our faith bold, to remember when we are weak, to energize us when we are tired in our faith. We have the privilege of direct fellowship with God. We have the fellowship of other people, the church, and we have the attention of the greatest friend in our relationship that we could ever have, the creator, the son of the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, our high priest. Well, that's a recipe for bold faith. Let's go on a little bit. What are the benefits of this bold faith? He says in verse 22, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we had those therefore since things, and, and really in some ways he's summarizing the whole first nine and a half chapters of the book, that the, the three things, we have the privilege of direct fellowship with God, we have the fellowship of others, the church, and we have the attention of, the, of God through his son, Jesus Christ. If that's all true, then what, what's the implication of that? He now gives three let us things. Since this stuff's all true, these three things, well, let's do this. We ought to behave like this if we really believe those things. If we have this solid faith in our relationship with the Lord, what should we do? Now, in, in these two verses I just read, 
we have two of these things, and we'll, then we'll look at the third one in a minute. Number one, he says we should draw near. In other words, <laughs> draw near to God. Use the relationship. You've got a relationship with God. Why don't you use it? Draw near to him. He's waiting for you. He says we're clean, not dirty. Reference to baptism here. We've been washed pure. This is not like a gym membership that we pay for and never use. Has anybody ever done that or is that just me? Yeah, I'm a member of that gym. You know, I actually do go to the gym. We, we have a membership at the YMCA, but... But I had one for a long time that I like went six months without using. Why am I paying? Why do I have this? Why do I have a relationship with God and I never use it? I never draw near to Him. Let our faith propel us to approach God in prayer and in fellowship. And then His second reason, His second let us, He says, hold on unswervingly. I love that word, unswervingly, big word. We all have up and down days when it comes to our faith. We have days of neglect. And let me, let me see if I can give you an illustration here. I, years ago, believe it or not, Josh, I was a youth minister. And uh, <clears throat> I used to like to take my youth group, if we could, we would go to amusement parks. I mean, isn't that what you do? I, there's one here in Des Moines, right, that people go over to, Fun City or something like that. I don't know what the name of it is. But... And, I, I, we would go on a trip and go to an amusement park. I took my group to Six Flags over Georgia and Atlanta, and we went to several of them. And they used to really like to go to water parks, you know, where they'd have water slides. And I cannot, I was trying to remember this week where this was, but we went to this one that was supposed to have the biggest water slide in the world. You know, I think they all say that. But this one was pretty believable. You, you had to walk up these stairs about 20 flights of stairs to get to the top, okay? And, of course, I'm going up there with my kids, and, and I'm in my 20s, and got these teenage boys, and they're all trying to be tough and macho and everything, and they're, they're trying to make the girls act like they're not afraid. And you get up there, and it's like, whoa. And so, being the brave person that I am, I encourage them all to go first, and they all went, you know, and uh, then I realized I was the only one left up there, and, and the attendant guys go, well, it's time to go. And they had these little mats that you went down on that you held on to. I remember this one. And uh, I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, save me. <laughs> and, but, you know, when you start down that water slide, I, I didn't have the option of 20 feet down. It's going, oh, it's too scary. I'm jumping off, Right? That's the way the Christian life is supposed to be, we, uh, unswervingly. We're dead ahead. We're on the slide. We should, be, we should be following it through to the end. And, and then look at the last two verses here, sharing our bold faith. And we're going to get our, our third let us here, sharing our bold faith. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So here's the third lettuce reason. We, we share our faith, but not the way we're usually told. This isn't what he's talking about. Not sharing your faith with your neighbors. We share our faith with the faithful. 
you get what he's saying here? Yeah, notice the picture he has here. A, a group waiting for the Lord to return. He calls it the day. We meet together in anticipation. We meet together to encourage each other. We realize that when we come together to church or small group, it's not just about you. When you come to church on Sunday morning, your very presence is a witness. It's an encouragement. It's a statement of faith to everyone in this room. You encourage me this morning just by your presence. Well, I didn't get anything out of church today. Well, no wonder the preacher was a jerk. I mean, this oblivious jerk, right? (laughs) Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Well, maybe somebody else did by just seeing you there. By hearing your voice. By feeling your love. Don't give up on that. So, sin was taken very seriously in Israel. The author certainly knows that. To atone for sins, one needed to visit the temple, to kill innocent animals, to use the services of a priest. And sin is taken very seriously in the book of Hebrews. The New Covenant, the New Testament, did not dissolve the reality of sin. It, it gave us hope instead for the forgiveness of sins, permanent forgiveness. And this could not be un- understood apart from the role of Jesus as this perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So in our uncertain times today, people naturally want assurances of security talking with someone the other day that, you know, was going to be affected by the layoff of the ConAgra people in Omaha, just not sure what's going to happen. We want to know that our jobs will continue. We want to know that our marriages will be successful. We want to know that our retirement plan will be adequate. And when a job terminates or a marriage ends, our retirement savings evaporate. We cannot help but experience anxiety. And the Christian is subject to the uncertainties of life just as any other person would be. Our faith in Christ will not necessarily protect us from financial ruin or personal tragedy, but our faith in Christ can give us the overall assurance that our future is in the hands of a loving God. Because of Jesus' atoning death, we're not subject to God's condemnation and wrath. We are covered by his atoning sacrifice. And this is the life of freedom that God has given us, a life where we can spur our fellow believers to love one another, to practice our loving faith through good and helpful deeds to other people. I I might go over a little bit. I'm sure that Mike never goes over, so this will be the first time. I heard laughter there. I was but I want to tell you a story about a guy you've probably all heard of, uh, a German fellow by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was a, he was an interesting dude. I've, I've read a lot about him. Several 
biographies have come out about him recently, and a movie was made about his life. He was this German uh, Lutheran, you would call him in this country, but the, part of the Protestant church in, in Germany, meaning he wasn't a Catholic, and came from a family where there were some pastors, and he was sort of called to the ministry, but he was just, a lot of people didn't think he was a very good candidate for ministry. He was sort of a, he was socially awkward, let's just say. He couldn't maintain relationships. He kind of prized friendships, but he always sort of weirded people out or something, I don't know. And So he, he did youth ministry for a while and mixed reviews, and then but he was a brilliant theologian, so he earned a doctorate, and then he was invited to go teach at a very prestigious seminary in New York City. He goes to New York City, and, and he goes, even though these are the days when the clouds of Nazism are enveloping Germany, war is approaching, and, and things in the church are, are bad. And he's just not satisfied. It's, one of the mo- it's a secure, safe, prestigious high-income job in New York City. He just doesn't want to do it. And so he wants to get back to Germany, and and he he does an interim thing. He goes to London, where there's a group of Germans, expatriates, that are in London, and they have a German-speaking congregation, and he becomes their pastor. He's their preacher. But even that isn't enough for him. He has to go back, even though now Hitler is firmly in control of the country, and Hitler has exercised control over the church, in Germany, he has appointed his own bishop, the Reichsbischof, the Bishop of the Reich, the Third Reich, who weds German nationalism, Nazism with Christianity and, and tries to say that it, being a Nazi and being a Christian is the same thing. And Bonhoeffer is aware of the persecution that's going on, of Jewish people that are dying, of other people that are being persecuted. And he goes back to Germany, and he becomes part of what is called now the Confessing Church. It's kind of like an underground church. It's not totally underground. People know about it. But he, he starts a seminary. They call it a seminary. It's just a, a, kind of a training thing for pastors. They don't have a library. They don't have any books. They barely have classrooms. They have to meet at night in kind of secret locations. And he's got these young boys who who want to serve the church, who love Jesus, and he's trying to train them how to use the Bible and to care for souls and, and to be a pastor and to, and to be able to preach a little bit in this underground seminary. But one of his friends approaches him, and there's a plot because Hitler is so horrible and so the, it's just so terrible that they decide that they need to be involved in a plot to assassinate him. And Bonhoeffer resists that, but eventually he becomes a little part of the plot. And they set off a bomb in a place where they think Hitler's going to be. He'd been there regularly every day on, or on this date. He should have been there, but he wasn't there. He survives the plot. A lot of people are killed, and the Gestapo round up everyone in Germany that they can find who even has a remote relationship to this plot, and Bonhoeffer is put in prison. And then his faith has to be real. He doesn't have the opportunity to go back to New York City, London, even to his home. He's in this horrible prison. And he becomes a pastor to the people there, and he has a little bit of freedom, so he writes letters, and we have some of those letters that he wrote. And he really begins to dwell 
on what it means to be a believer in Christ. And he comes up with this idea. He says that faith in Christ has to be for life or death. And faith that is for fully committed to Christ means that we put ourselves fully in the arms of God, in the arma gata, in the arms of God. And that's what he does. And so it's not a happy story at the end. He's in this Flossenburg prison and the Allies are coming across Europe and they're ready to liberate Flossenburg within a day or two. And the, the administrators of that little prison decide that it's better to not leave any evidence. And so just hours, literally, before the, the uh, Americans liberate the prison, he is hanged and he dies. But he dies in the arms of God. That's faith. That's bold faith. Faith that would stand for life or death. Let's pray. God, give us that bold faith, that faith like Bonhoeffer had, that faith the author of Hebrews is pushing us toward, that faith that that's willing to come together and, and bear one another's burdens and share that faith that is willing to trust in, in Jesus and, and to, to approach you boldly. Give us that faith, Father. Help us be the people that are holy, holy in your arms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.